Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Paris climate talks kick off in just a few short weeks. On November 30th, President Obama and many other heads of state are going to kick off weeks of negotiations that, if all goes according to plan, will usher in a new kind of international climate change regime. These talks are a huge deal for diplomacy and for the planet. On the line with me to discuss the contours of the talks, the expected outcomes, the diplomatic intrigues, and possible speed bumps along the way is Elliot Derringer, Executive Vice President of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. For those of you less steeped in the complexities of climate diplomacy, this episode will serve as a useful primer to the Paris Climate Talks. But as our conversation progresses, we go deeper and deeper into the weeds, so there's good fodder for you climate wonks as well. As always, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our prior episodes and get in touch with me if you like. And please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. I'd much appreciate it. And now here is my conversation with Elliot Derringer. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And what I see is a pretty broad convergence around uh, around the contours of the agreement. Certainly, there are a lot of specific issues that remain to be negotiated, a lot of details. Uh, but I think in terms of the general approach that's emerging for Paris, there is pretty broad consensus. So, so what is that consensus? What does that approach look like? Uh, it's something that we describe as a hybrid approach. So over the years, we've tried different things in the international climate regime, some heading in a more top-down direction, Kyoto Protocol, uh, others in a more bottom-up direction, the agreements that came out of uh, Copenhagen and Cancun, and both have shown some virtues, but neither is really getting the job done. So I think what we see shaping up for Paris is an attempt to blend some top-down and bottom-up elements to strike the right balance, Uh, a balance that gets you both broad participation, uh, which Kyoto no longer has, never never really did, but also some strong accountability and ambition. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk uh, maybe, let's disaggregate those if, if we can, because uh, mm-hmm. presumably uh, in the former, you're referring to the intended nationally determined contributions, which is the, the key point and the highlight of the Paris climate talks that everyone, all the, all, what is it, like 150 countries at this point are bringing to the table their own contributions to the global fight against climate change, whether it's by curbing deforestation or reducing their carbon emissions. Is that right? Exactly. And that that is a new construct in these negotiations, that this notion of nationally determined contributions. And that provides a, uh, 
uh, a flexibility that helps achieve that broad participation. If you make it easy for countries to come in with contributions that fit their circumstances, then it's easier for them to, to sign on. But but the agreement needs to be more than that. Those mm-hmm. are the individual contributions countries are, are bringing to the table. Uh, the additive value of Paris has to be embedding those contributions in an international framework that, that uh, brings some greater discipline, some international discipline to the equation in order to provide for accountability and ambition. Um, so I, I like the, the, the way the um, economist frames the intended nationally determined contributions being like the coalition of the willing, right? People bring what they can to the table, as, as you just said. Um, adding them all up, and I know that they've been announced throughout uh, the, the year, um, does that get us close to the, the two-degree target that the UN has been pushing for us you know, for, for the last several years now? Uh, it gets us closer to the two-degree goal, but it certainly doesn't get us there, all the way there. Where does it get us, uh, precisely? Well, are, there are, range, there estimates? are there estimates? There, there are a range of estimates out there. I mean, uh, some uh, some say it could put us at 2.7 degrees by the end of the century, others uh, above three degrees. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to come up with a precise estimate. But, you know, the track we're on now, before the INDCs, as we've come to call them, uh, was closer to four degrees. Um, so certainly the numbers on the table right now uh, are a big improvement, but they're not enough, which is why the agreement needs to include a mechanism to help drive ambition going forward. And I think what we are very likely to see is a requirement that, that countries come back to the table again every five years and take stock of where we are, how much progress we're making or are not making, uh, and then offer up a new round of contributions. So you create a political moment there, like we have heading into uh, Paris, uh, where everybody has to say, okay, here's what we're prepared to do next. And Um, my understanding is that France and China, at least at uh, this point, have endorsed the idea of having one of these big climate confabs every five years. Uh, I, I think there's pretty broad convergence around that idea. Some of the specifics on, on how that process is designed, uh, again, remain to be negotiated. But at, at this stage, I think that uh, most are pretty well on board with the idea of these five-year cycles. Um, so uh, the INDCs are, are the centerpiece of the uh, of, of, of the talks, uh, but you also mentioned, you know, mechanisms for ensuring um, that, that they're followed through. What other mechanisms besides uh, meeting again every five years can we expect uh, to come out of these talks? Right. Well, I mean, the, so the five-year cycle speaks to, to the need for, for growing ambition. Uh, accountability is another important thing we need this agreement to provide, and that will be primarily uh, through transparency mechanisms, requiring countries to report regularly on their emissions and on the steps they're taking to implement these contributions they're, they've put forward. Uh, and then these reports would be subject to some form of international review, some international scrutiny, uh, to, so that everyone can have a, a good handle, a much better handle, on how well each country is doing. And that kind of transparency really keeps the pressure on countries, uh, both pressure from other countries, but also from civil society at large, to stick to their promises. To that end, can we expect the agreement to um, you know, usher in the advent of a new international climate bureaucracy of some sort? 
I don't think so. I mean, the, we have in place now uh, systems of transparency that have evolved over the last 20 years under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, the, the, the existing system has been bifurcated from the start with different requirements for developed and developing countries. I think what we'll see coming out of Paris is a transition to a common, a more unified system uh, where everyone is working toward the same standards of accountability. There will be some flexibility in there uh, because obviously countries have varying capacities, uh, so you need to accommodate those. But the aim, again, is for everybody to to, to achieve a, a level of capacity that enables them to meet the same standards of accountability. So under the present system, we, we've, we've had expert review teams for many years, uh, the process of developed countries submitting annual emissions inventories, um, as well as more detailed national communications. Uh, now both developed and developing countries are submitting uh, biennial reports every couple of years. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the machinery is in place, and it's a question of how you uh, strengthen and fine tune that machinery and develop some stronger requirements across the board. That's mm-hmm. that's really what we'll see happen in Paris. It sounds like you're describing that there is this broad convergence, and we're, again, we're we're a few weeks out of the con- from the conference. Um, what do you think is going to keep um, you know the mid-level bureaucrats and, and mid-level diplomats and negotiators up at night um, before their heads of state come? Like, what are the big outstanding issues uh, that are still left to be drafted, and what are and are there real thorny issues ahead that need to be worked out? Well, well, well first one one difference between Paris and the last time we had a bunch of heads of state at one of these meetings in Copenhagen is that this time the presidents and prime ministers are actually coming at the start, not at the end. Uh, so we'll kind of get that, that uh, out of the way up front. Um, the issues that I think, and, and, and then they'll leave and the negotiators will have to wrestle with these issues. Well, that's really uh, interesting um, because usually the, the um, value of having the heads of state come at the end is that it, it sort of creates a, a deadline for the process that you know these, these senior diplomats need to have something that their heads of state can sign when they arrive, but they're flipping that. They are flipping that. I, I think that's just uh, drawing some lessons from the Copenhagen experience, which, which you know didn't uh, didn't unfold the way anybody had anticipated. I think, um, in this way, the the presidents <coughs> and prime ministers can arrive at the start and lend some momentum and inspiration, and and you know set some expectations that uh, that their negotiators will produce an agreement by the end of the conference. Um, but you avoid the sort of scenario you had in Copenhagen, where it sort of falls to the heads of state to actually negotiate the terms of the agreement, uh, which is, is, was a pretty extraordinary happening uh, in Copenhagen and not something I think any of them really want to mm-hmm. uh, uh, undergo again. Um, but as far as the, you know, what will be the crunch issues, uh, I, I certainly think finance will be among, of them, among them. Uh, this has been a perennial issue in these negotiations. Uh, developed countries committed back in 1992 to provide support to developing countries. Um, <clears throat> you know, there have been ongoing debates over whether it's been sufficient. More recently, they pledged to mobilize $100 billion a year by 2020. So a lot of the, the recent focus has been on whether we're on track toward meeting that goal. And the latest assessment from the OECD seems to say yes, probably. 
Um, so one of the questions in Paris will be whether to set a new uh, a new collective finance goal for beyond 2020. Um, and so far, developed countries have been resisting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another question is... Isn't, is, isn't uh, on, on the question of, of finance, um, isn't part of the question even like how you count what is climate finance? Um, absolutely. And that's why, that's why it, it's been difficult to answer the question of whether we are on track to that $100 billion goal, because uh, the goal was to mobilize $100 billion a year in public and private resources. Uh, and the public is a little easier to account for, but even there, um, you know, there are debates over whether certain types of support from countries counts toward climate finance. Uh, but it becomes much trickier on the on the private flow side uh, in terms of what you actually count toward that goal. And the OECD took a fairly conservative approach, uh, basically only counting private finance that you could see was select directly leveraged by some public finance. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, that that has been uh, that has been a, an issue. Uh, what actually counts? Is there a- any threat or any concern that this question of climate finance, which is something that the developing world is very much in favor of getting as much as they can, and the developed world is very much in favor of keeping to uh, a minimum, um, that this divergence will somehow undermine the talks as a whole? Um, I think the, the there's always some risk of either finance or some other issue uh, unraveling things. I think that risk is about as low as it's been in many years heading into Paris. Um, on the finance issue in particular, um, one thing that's helping is that uh, developed countries have really wanted to uh, see the donor base expanded so that the burden isn't entirely on them at a time where you have uh, major emerging economies like China with rather significant wherewithal um, to set the expectation that they too are helping out. And you saw an important signal from China in the recent uh, joint U.S.-China statement where uh, they they pledged $3 billion to a new fund they've set up. But they also, uh, the, the statement included some language about encouraging uh, parties willing to do so to contribute as well beyond the developed countries. And I think that's one of the concepts that uh, will likely come across in the Paris Agreement. So broadening that that base of support, I I think, uh, hopefully, will help developed countries show a little more flexibility on the question of a long-term goal or some of the other uh, things people would like to see. So it's always a tough issue. Uh, It could be the one that goes down to the wire. Uh, But I'm I'm pretty hopeful that they can find their way through it. Um, so you've been following these issues for, for a long time. Um, how do you, you know, if you take a step back um, and look at the process and, and the advent of the INDCs as, um, you know, kind of the, what, what you might call voluntary contributions to the, uh, to, to the climate change process, um, do you think that that um, strategy uh, in retrospect was effective and has been effective? And, uh, you know, if you had to do it all over again, is that, would you um, recommend that countries go the INDC route as opposed to the the top-down route where there's a legally binding treaty that everyone agrees to? Um, I I think we see strong evidence that it is working, that this approach is working. I mean, the fact that you have more than 150 countries uh, accounting for nearly 90% of global emissions that have come forward and put it on the table, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I, I think without even having a word of the agreement agreed yet, 
this process is having a catalytic effect, if you will. I mean, all of these governments have had to undertake processes in their capitals to assess their situation and, and think about what it is they can do uh, and what it is they're willing to commit to the international community they'll do. Uh, and, and I think that's been really helpful. A lot of these countries have never done that before. Um, so, so in that sense, I, I think it's already a bit of a success. Um, but, you know, what we're going to wind up with, um, uh, I used that term hybrid earlier, um, there, there will be binding requirements uh, in this agreement that will be a treaty. Uh, it, it will be of a form that constitutes a treaty under international law. Uh, one major issue is whether the targets themselves are legally binding, uh, and my guess is they won't be, but there will be other binding requirements, which is what uh, makes this different from, mm -hmm. for instance, the, the Copenhagen and Cancun approach, which was strictly voluntary. But I, I suppose the difference is that, you know, it, it's, we're not going to require a two-thirds uh, majority of the U.S. Senate for the U.S. to fulfill its own obligations under the Paris uh, Treaty that fall under the INDCs. Right. This is well, something that the U.S. Um, is already if, bringing to the table. Yeah, if, if, um, uh, if the agreement uh, does not make the targets binding, uh, then, and that's one one of the threshold issues that would determine whether it could be uh, it could be ratified by the United States through executive action rather than uh, being treated as a uh, what they call an Article Three treaty that has to go to the to the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the, so the, there, the, there's there, so, there are other there are other considerations there. But the the question is, there is a proposal on the table that each country's INDC becomes binding under international law through the treaty process. That is one possible route for this outcome. Well, I mean, there are there are lots of options still in the in the draft they're working mm -hmm. on, and, and yes, uh, there there are options that would make those targets binding. But the U.S., I would imagine, is strongly pushing against that. Yeah, the U.S. and other countries as well. And there are many countries that don't feel they need to push for it, even though that's their preferred outcome, because they know that that's the U.S. preference. Um, so, I, I th and, and even, among, even among countries that are pushing for it, uh, I get a strong sense from their negotiators that they understand where the landing zone is ultimately on this issue. Um, so outside the, the sort of formal negotiations of the treaty, or uh, of, of the treaty part, I guess part of it is a treaty, and of the prayers climate talks in, in general, outside the, the formal processes, do you expect um, any big movement from civil society or from the private sector or from you know, public-private partnerships that we might see come together in Paris to take on perhaps discrete aspects of you know the broader climate change agenda i mean that's you know that's sort of been the um mo at these kind of big u.n meetings recently where you have the formal parts of the meeting but then on the outskirts of the formal part of the meeting you have corporations and philanthropies and civil society groups coming together and forming their own kind of strategic partnerships to take on one discrete part of the agenda do you see anything like that sort of forming uh in the run-up to paris uh, absolutely, and, and very deliberately so. I mean, you've always had some some swirl of civil society activity around the formal negotiations, but uh, this time uh, the conference has been designed to provide really an unprecedented opportunity to 
to kind of catalyze and highlight the contributions of what are referred to by the government as non-state actors, so companies, cities, states, uh, civil society at large. Uh, so there's actually been an online portal established uh, where all of those folks can go and register specific commitments uh, that they're bringing to Paris. And when I when I checked earlier today, I think they were uh, they had more than 6,600 at this point. Uh, so that's really helping to facilitate uh, an expression of the kind of commitment that is being felt at these different levels across societies. Yeah, my understanding uh, is that Bloomberg is, is bringing a, a whole bunch of mayors together. That's right. They're planning a, uh, a day-long uh, uh, meeting with mayors to highlight what they're doing and to help, uh, to help others do more. And it could what, be everything from we're going to change our street lights to, to the LCD, LED lighting to you know, other bigger commitments. Yeah, and that, I mean, so so this is both uh, a forum for uh, negotiating a new understanding among countries at the multilateral level uh, that hopefully serves to strengthen our efforts going forward, and at the same time uh, providing a tremendous learning platform across all different kinds of sectors, uh, public and private, about the practical means of achieving those goals. Uh, so a lot of sharing goes on. So are we, were you going to go to Paris? Will you be there? Oh yeah, I I I do plan to be there. Yep. What are you going to be doing there? What's your What's your agenda? What's like the Wonk agenda at Paris? Well, I, I mean, I, I'd like to think my primary uh, task is to actually monitor the negotiations so that I can offer some perspective on what's happening. Uh, we do we we publish a summary at the end of the COP, so we'll need to to. Uh, to understand where we wind up, but we'll also uh, organize a number of events uh, highlighting different aspects of the issue. Uh, I'll probably be engaging with folks like you, helping to communicate some of this information to a broader audience. And uh, hope, I, I, I'm counting on, by the end, uh, being able to offer a toast. To well, thank you so much. I mean, your, your insights and your help and your helping me understand this have been so invaluable. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Anytime. All right, thank you all for listening. I hope you found that useful. I know I did. On a completely separate note, I don't usually do this, but I wanted to plug Dawn's Digest. That's D-A-W-N-S-D-I-G-E-S-T, dawnsdigest.com. It's the project I work on with my friend Tom Murphy, my interlocutor in the Worm Wars episode, if you listen to that. Basically, it's a news clip service for the global humanitarian international development and human rights community. A lot of people find it useful. It's totally free for users, so go to dawnsdigest.com and sign up, and you'll receive a concise digest of the top global development news, global humanitarian news, and international news of the day from me and Tom. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.